Hello, 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 and welcome to the third official episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. I'm your host, Danny, and over here, we hope to serve you the grains of capitalism. Today, we have a very interesting topic. We're going to be talking about the One Belt, One Road project. If you've been paying attention lately in the news, you might have heard about this. Uh, it's not actually a new project. It's something that China has introduced back, I think, in around 2013, but that lately has been picking up a lot of steam, gathering quite a bit of media attention. And I think it's something that uh, might be might be really implemented in the years uh, in the in the near future. So before I want to go into before I want to talk about the details of this uh, one belt one road initiative, I think it'll be interesting to sort of contrast this and provide some background uh, as a sort of contrast as a sort of narrative to this one belt one road project. Right. So. Back in uh, November 9th, 2016, in the hours after Donald Trump had secured a massive upset by beating Hillary Clinton to become president-elect of the United States, financial markets were, they weren't happy. They had, they had expected a Hillary Clinton win, but Donald Trump uh, pipped her in the elections instead, and the markets were on edge. However, as they sort of went back to look, to look at what Trump was promi- promising, to so look at some of his economic uh, initiatives, including the likes of major tax reform, including the likes of uh, less re- less government regulation, including the likes of uh, infrastructure spending, and generally promises of economic growth, uh, markets really soared on this, uh, on the back of what is now known as the Trump reflation trade, which brought the Dow Jones to new record highs in the months to follow, and I think even one point uh, eclipsing the 21,000 mark. However, there have been recent political stumbles that have sort of deflated this uh, Trump-induced optimism, including the likes of stumbling at the first attempt to take down Obamacare, you know, raising geopolitical tensions by firing missiles at Syria, and uh, recently fueling controversy by firing the FBI director James Comey while Trump was supposedly under investigation for possible Russian collusion during the election. These stumbles have crowded out the economic narrative in the media, where the tax reform plan was hastily put together and remains, as of now, nowhere close to being implemented, where inflation is now dangerously, you know, teetering dangerously close to the Fed's 2% mark, and where the U.S. has recorded a measly 0% growth in GDP for the first quarter of 2017, despite early estimates coming in, coming in at around 3%. So what about the infrastructure, right? Well, the wall as of now, this famous wall that Trump promised during the campaign, is just that. It just remains, as of now, it is just a campaign promise. And the plan to invest up to, it it was an estimated about about a, a trillion US dollars in new infrastructure investment. Now it's just a pipe dream. But while political tensions continue to consume the attention of the country, the great eastern beast that is China has been quietly humming along on this new project, this One Belt, One Road initiative, and one that is, I think, perhaps the most ambitious the world has ever seen. So in this episode, so that, that was kind of the backstory, sort of contrast. We see it, kind of interesting to see how um, in the wake of the, the United States, uh, you know, they, they, they've, they've been known for quite a while now, I think particularly since World War II, as this, this great world leader, this uh, beacon of uh, globalization and at the forefront of uh, you know, 
economic liberalization and stuff like that, how recently they have sort of taken a step back and, and, and started focusing inwards with Donald Trump, sort of uh, raising these more uh, protectionist or nationalistic tendencies. How I think I think I find it quite interesting how on the on, on the back of that China has now come forward with this great uh, globalization initiative. Sort of I think they're, they 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 want to take this uh, take this as a stepping stone to you know pounce ahead and become the new global leader. So in this episode we're going to be discussing what the features of this one belt one road project is. Uh, as well as summarizing some of the potential uh, benefits and some of the, you know, what 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 kind of hurdles it might face. And lastly, and we're going to look inwards towards Singapore. We're going to see how this One Belt, One Road initiative, what kind of implications they will have for for us, for, you know, maybe millennials, and especially for those who are going to be joining the working sector or they're already in the working sector for the next two years, for the next few years, what, you know, what kind of things uh, you might expect. Right, so let's get into it. So what is this One Belt, One Road project? Well, essentially, this is China's attempt to revitalize the ancient Silk Road uh, trading routes. So the project has already garnered their support of over 68 countries, which encompasses a trading region that is made up of uh, around 4.4 billion people and makes up about 40% of global GDP. So 40% of all the global goods and services traded so now this now this project is essentially divided into two distinct parts. The first part being the Silk Road Economic Belt, and the second part being the Maritime Silk Road. Hence the name One Belt One Road. The the, the economic the Silk Road Economic Belt is a land-based infrastructure project that aims to connect uh, Xi'an in northern China all the way through on the northern hemisphere uh, through through land masses in the northern hemisphere to Rotterdam in the Netherlands, while the other part of the project, the Maritime Silk Road uh, side of it, this is aimed at developing shipping routes and ports across the Chinese port in Futo all the way to Venice in southern Europe. So you can imagine, you know, Futo is on, I think, the southeast, southeastern side of China. So it's going to go down, go through Southeast Asia, and then pass along through, you know, Central Asia, pass through Africa, and then go to Europe uh, through through southern Europe, through Greece, and then through to Venice from there. So I'll be providing links to some of the uh, maps where you can see this, uh, where you can where you can see the the, the routes in in detail. And uh, yeah, you can you can check them out there. I don't want to spend too much time talking about that. So also there there recently, as I mentioned before, there was a Belt and Road Forum. Uh, where Xi Jinping he invited a whole bunch of state leaders and people from uh, you know big international organizations to discuss some of the the plans or the initiatives or some of the projects that will be taking place with the One Belt One Road. So some of the planned projects that are underway, some of the specific ones, I want to try I want to try and list them out there so I could sort of flesh out the idea of what what uh, kind of give an example of what these are going to be and what you might you might be expecting. Uh, to hear about in the uh, in the near future. So under train infrastructure projects, these include a China Europe Railway Express that will have fifty one rail links connecting multiple Chinese and European cities. So the big the big benefit of this or the big upside of this is that freight trains now have a much shorter transport time than sea routes. So it was difficult from uh, 
for 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 Chinese uh, uh, shipping companies to to sort of get to to Europe or sort of the trade of Europe because you you had to go the long way around. And there was no there was no easy way to get through uh, the, the the giant landmass that I was talking about across Central Asia uh, across uh, to to Europe. So now they're planning to build this railway, which will make that easier. So hopefully we'll shorten the, the trading time for that. So another train-related infrastructure project is the 873-kilometer uh, high-speed railway project between China and Thailand. So this will link the Chinese border to Thailand's ports. Specifically, the project uh, will likely transform the southwestern Yunnan province into a trading hub, which will serve as China's gateway into the Southeast Asian markets. So again, another big benefit, uh, another clear attempt at increasing trade or making increasing the access to trade. This will not only be beneficial to, to China, of course, this will be beneficial uh, for Southeast Asian countries as well to try and export into China, make it easier for us, to, especially if you have these uh, trains uh, going back and forth. Right, so so that covers train infrastructure products projects. That's two of the examples there. For seaports, I think one big one I want to highlight here is that China recently purchased Turkey's uh, third largest port, which is called Kumport, spelled K-U-M-P-O-R-T. It was bought over by three Chinese state-owned enterprises, and this will serve as an important joint between the Belt and Road. So I mentioned earlier the Belt will will go across the northern side of the hemisphere and the road will sort of cut through uh, from the bottom side uh, through through different shipping routes. So they will intersect at Turkey and this will serve as an important junction where the where the belt and road meet. Right? So that, that's an important seaport there. So and then next I want to talk about an industrial park which is already being planned. Uh, so in the near future they plan to build an industrial park in Guantan, Malaysia. So this will be used for steel, aluminum, and palm oil processing. So this is, so so these these are sort of uh, infrastructure projects that you can expect in the near near, near future from this uh, one belt one road initiative. All right. So the the above mentioned list is by no means exhaustive, and I think going forward you can expect it will continue to expand, and there will be more deals and more uh, arrangements being made. So should China succeed in this ambitious in initiative, I think it will definitely increase the efficiency of trade in the region uh, by you know leaps and bounds, multiple leaps and bounds. I think the benefits of which will be reaped by generations to come in developing and developed countries alike. However, for each benefit that the One Belt, One Road initiative potentially brings, there are plenty of risks as well. So therefore, I think it is pertinent that we discuss what these benefits are and what the risks are, and we'll do so in the following section. So we're going to begin with uh, the pot potential benefits first. I think the first one, the most obvious one, is that there will be a great economic boon uh, that, will, that will be provided to the countries that are involved. So particularly, I think, this will be helpful for developing countries such as Kenya or Mongolia, where the, the, the added investment that China will help bring in, uh, I think it will attract you know, more investment to come. It will help to build up a sort of business environment in these countries. It will help to bring in new jobs. It will help to, to improve the local infrastructure and definitely boost the local business climate. So these sort of changes, you know, especially for, for these uh, emerging market countries or developing economies, 
you know, as I mentioned, Kenya or Mongolia or even maybe a Vietnam, uh, you know, they don't have a lot of GDP. They don't, they, 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 they're not considered what you might say among the most prosperous countries in the world. So definitely if they could get a bit of uh, help from outside, a bit of injection to, to help them build these, the, the, the economic climate, a climate, this will, this will increase the opportunities for the locals and there'll be a lot of, uh, uh, it'll, it'll present a great economic boon for them uh, in the near future. So such changes uh, will definitely bring about, as I said, significant opportunities for impoverished individuals right, to better their economic conditions, while future generations stand to reap from the positive externalities that the One Belt, One Road initiative brings including likes of having better roads, better trains, and opening, as well as, as an opening to reach a wider global market or you know, even greater access to funding when you have all this uh, cooperation between countries and you know, so much business and trade that is going on. Right, so that's the first uh, economic point. And the second one, uh, the, the first point is sort of uh, more towards um, you know, the developing countries. And I, I, I think... That, that they stand to gain disproportionately from this kind of investment, particularly, as I mentioned before, for these poorer countries or for these emerging or developing economies. Another thing that I didn't mention, of course, of course, is that, you know, some, some people might wonder why they don't invest so much in infrastructure and, and so on and so forth. You know, so, so one reason might be they, they're just struggling enough as it is to maybe maintain uh, different parts of the economy, maybe to maintain the education system or maintain their health system or maintain this or maintain that such that they're not generating enough or they're not taking enough, the government is not taking enough in tax revenue to, to invest in these countries. Or maybe their they, environment is just not uh, ready yet to, or, or, or maybe sort of the, the regulatory climate or, uh, you know, sort of the political climate is not really attractive yet to attract all these uh, foreign investors to come in and, and, and start building factories or start building uh, roads and bridges and so forth. So definitely, if China is willing to take these sort of risks to go into to the, these developing economies to, 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 to pump in investment needed to, to help set up the infrastructure, that will be a great boon to them. All right, so that's enough for the first point. Second point, this will look more inward to its benefits for China themselves. So I think that this initiative really presents a way for China to ship its own domestic overproduction offshore. So a, a little bit of background to this, right? In recent years, there's been a, a great pressure from Chinese authorities to maintain the national GDP growth rates, which have led to significant overproduction in industries such as steel and tires. So the One Belt, One Road initiative, I think, allows China to generate more demand for its domestic overproduction, thereby hitting two birds, two birds with one stone by both boosting infrastructure development in other countries, which helps them, and as well, they can maintain production levels at home, or at least they now have a substantial reason to do so if they, they're using it to feed infrastructure development in other countries. So further, financial markets, they haven't been too comfortable in recent years especially by fears that the Chinese, this great Chinese economic engine would slow down and stagnate and sort of uh, mean that global trade as a whole would slow down as well. So this One Belt, One Road is a way in which 
China can relieve some of that worry that investor, investors might have as it, 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 as it is a sort of a opportunity for them to find new markets and new avenues for trade and growth. So this is definitely going to be a big uh, economic opportunity and a big uh, benefit to China. So we covered two economic benefits that might happen. Uh, now I'm going to go over and switch, switch gears a little bit to go over to the political side. So the one by one road here, I think, presents China with a great opportunity to win diplomacy and influence in key trading regions like Southeast Asia, like Central Asia, like Europe. So as I, men- as I, as I mentioned before, and uh, as I set up with, as a sort of background uh, to introduce the topic uh, at the beginning of the episode, talking about how, you know, the... The narrative now in Western democracy in the United States is particularly turning more, you know, protectionist, more nationalistic. They're looking more inwards rather than opening their, their trading borders, going outwards. This is a great opportunity for China to sort of piggyback uh, as a contrast of that, right? So, so, so this is particularly. I think this will be particularly effective as a global as a global a globalization initiative. And pitted against the rising trend, as I've mentioned, of nationalism in Western democracy. Right. So, so that covers sort of, I think, what are, what are the main potential benefits uh, that can come out of this One Belt, One Road initiative. So let's have a look now at some of the potential risks. So beginning the first off, as, as much as it is obvious that there'll be a lot of economic benefit to come out of this One Belt, One Road initiative, I think one of the most obvious risks or stumbling blocks that this project, this initiative might have is the funding side of it. So after all, there was a report by Fitch Ratings that recently estimated that some about of all the projects that are already planned or, 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 or are already underway, they sum up to around you know, 900 US billion dollars. Hefty sum. However, expected costs for this entire initiative may run up to 26 trillion US dollars all the way through to 2030 or you know roughly about 1.7 trillion US dollars per year as according to an estimate by the uh, Asian Development Bank. So, as of April 22nd, 2017, uh, there was a recent China Channel News Asia uh, article that summarized uh, and, and sort of pointed out that China has so far pledged about 240 billion US dollars through public funding with three agencies towards the, this uh, one belt one road initiative. So this uh, these three agencies comprise about 100 US billion dollars coming from the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, about 40 US billion dollars from the uh, Silk Road Fund. And lastly, about a hundred U.S. billion dollars from the New Development Bank. So recently, at the Belt and Road Forum, uh, during his keynote speech, President Xi Jinping himself pledged a further hundred billion RMB, which equates about which equates to about uh, fourteen point five U.S. fourteen point five billion U.S. dollars to the Silk Road Fund, as well as encouraging, you know, national financial institutions to go overseas and try and raise funds. And they expect that the uh, amount they can get from this will be in the region of 300 billion RMB. Now, 
before you even try and do that conversion, I think it is clear that whatever has been raised or pledged so far is not even enough to cover this $900 billion amount, right? So let, so, so it's not even enough to cover the current projects that are planned or underway, let alone all the infrastructure spending that's going to happen in the coming years. So while President Xi himself, himself has mentioned that a multi-tiered uh, Belt and Road financial cooperation network is coming together, I think this presents further concerns. For example, if public funding alone is not enough to meet future requi- funding requirements, how much private funding is required? And if, funding, if private funding is indeed required, what will be the ratio of public to private funding? You know, and, and this raises even more questions. Will the projects be financed through debt, equity, or a mixture? Who's going to be managing the projects? Is it going to be from uh, private funds or is it going to be state, state officials? You know, uh, will, will the projects be financed? Uh, you know, who, who's going to bear the losses when, um, the one, when a certain One Belt, One Road project falls through or fails? You know, how long are these investments going to take to get a return? Uh, how, what you know? What what kind of problems are are are, are they going to face? You know, uh, yeah, yeah. Basically, in summary, if if China is really looking to uh, try and bring additional funding from the private sector, and as it stands, it really looks like it's going to have to. They will they will need to, I think, um, sort of establish a vehicle or a channel by which they can reliably relay information about what the expected returns are or how the funds are to be allocated. I think without this transparency, it will be really difficult to, to build trust and draw in private, private, investors, uh, private investors going forward. So this problem, so this is, this is one issue itself already with uh, trying to get funding from the public side. So this problem is uh, further exacerbated by the inherent risks that investing in emerging markets bear. So Zhong Gai, uh, a McKinsey senior partner, so he describes in a recent McKinsey podcast that infrastructure investment in a lot of the emerging markets is notorious for risk. So particularly, he notes that it's long-term, it's political, and there are a lots of uncertainties. People are unwilling to do that investment for many, many years. So essentially, uh, the risk in trying to source private funding, uh, as I mentioned before, there, there's one element to it. Now this is another element. So this is twofold for the Chinese authorities. One of which is that essentially there, there, there hasn't been much, much detail being said yet of what the funds are or how they're going to allocate the funds. Uh, or, or certainly nothing to allay the uh, the fears that investors might have. And the second risk and the second problem of this is that investing in emerging markets is going to be very risky by itself, which is not going to attract uh, many risk-averse investors, particularly maybe in China or in more conservative cultures such as Singapore. So to really flesh out this problem, right, I want to bring about, I want, I want, I want to try and introduce a hypothetical here. So picture, picture a scenario whereby you have maybe $10,000 or $20,000 sitting in your savings account and then one day your banker suddenly calls and says, hey, there's this uh, investment opportunity comes up. And, you know, if, if, if all he says is that, oh, you know, uh, this investment opportunity is that 
uh, you know, some some Chinese uh, government fund is going to use this and and use it to build roads in Kenya. I don't, th- <laughs> I don't think that will be enough to sort of convince you to part with your money, right? At, at least you know you're gonna need you're gonna need a lot more details or a lot more convincing, a lot more trust building than that, right? So that's the first big risk is the funding side of it, and I think another another part of it, uh, as as I mentioned, sort of mirroring the, the the structure of the benefits where one was looking outward, another was looking inward. Second risk also is now looking internally towards China. So previously I mentioned, um, I introduced, I think it was Zhong Gai, the McKinsey senior partner. He was talking about the inherent risks in investing in um, emerging markets. So he also mentions in the same same podcast that China might be spreading itself too thin if it takes on this project. So what he means by this is that China is currently overseeing a great uh, transition period in the economy, introducing a lot of economic reforms as it tries to find new growth drivers in what has essentially become a maturing manufacturing economy, right? They're trying to transition from the manufacturing, from a mostly manufacturing economy, going to one that relies on more on service and domestic cons- consumption. So while, while new trade partnerships can definitely be brought about by this One Belt, One Road initiative, Ngai notes that there are still many reforms and still many internal challenges, uh, still many stumbling blocks that they will have to overcome and that, that you know, this One Belt, One Road initiative alone is not going to help solve. So this, so China, if they, if they take on this uh, One Belt, One Road initiative, they will have to look, they will have to, you know, uh, exert significant uh, resources and, and focus a lot of attention outside of China, but at the same time, they have to really, really make sure that they don't lose track of what, of the reforms and the changes uh, in, in the in, in the local uh, in the domestic uh, economic environment. All right, so that covers the economic risks that I wanted to talk about. I want to move over move over now. I'm going to talk about on the political side. So a major risk I think is that countries see China as taking this one belt one road initiative as an opportunity for imperial expansion. So as a result, this is some nations' uh, concern for their own independence. For instance, India pulled out of the recent Belt and Road forums, and they stated that they could not accept a project that compromised its sovereignty. While while the Indian Foreign Ministry spokesperson, uh, Gopal Baglai, that's the guy, while he makes a point, I think, by noting that emerging markets might risk their economic health if they use debt to pay for the infrastructure projects, I think it is more likely the case that India is more unhappy with the fact that the planned China-Pakistan economic corridor it transgresses it transgresses over disputed territory in Gilgit, Baltistan. So this unhappiness is also reflected recent uh, by recent various um, student and political organization pro- protests where they describe this uh, China-Pakistan economic corridor as an illegal attempt to grab Gilgit. In fact, the tensions have reached such a point that Pakistan has even set up a security division comprising of about 13,000 personnel to protect the development of the China-Pakistan economic corridor. As a further note on this uh, threat of imperial expansion, it is not uncommon today... uh, if, if you if you pay attention to Western media outlets, 
Western media alerts for for them to sort of smear China's um, One Belt One Road initiative. So one example can be seen in a New York Times article which describes China General Nuclear Power Corps' recent investment at the Husab uranium mine in Namibia as a new form of colonialism and accusing China of exploiting resources without benefiting the local population. However, this assertion has been uh, met and it was rejected by Chinese authorities, with Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Geng Shuang noting that if the Belt and Road was controlled by China and people could not share the benefits, then there would not be so many countries and organizations that are enthusiastic about it. And I think one point here is that uh, this is a spokesperson. I think he really strikes at a deeper point that this One Belt, One Road initiative, it's a mutually, you know, it's a mutually uh, beneficial thing, right? As in countries come, come, to, come to work with China to develop these infrastructure projects voluntarily. China is not going around saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to build this here, we're going to build this there, and we're going to, you know, enslave all your laborers to help build, all, build everything up. We're going we're gonna to give them, you know, crappy wages and stuff like that. China is not going to do that. China is saying, if you want to be involved, here, here is how, here is, uh, you know, here, here's some of the, the, the here, here's the grand layout of the, of the plan that we have envisioned. Here's how you can get involved. Here's how we can benefit you. And here's how we can work together. So, you know, and, and, and by example, right, India themselves have already pulled out. They, they have, uh, they have sort of a more, I think their concerns are sort of a more political bent to it rather than being of a, being, ha- having a sort of e- economic concern, but they voluntarily pull out. So it, it's kind of, <laughs> you know, it, it I, I kind of find it hard to see where the New York Times is coming from when they make this assertion of, uh, of uh, accusing of accusing China of being you know having these uh, imperial or co- colonialistic intentions you know asserting that they won't benefit the local e- local economy when these local economies themselves have voluntarily agreed to uh, to being part of this one belt one road initiative all right so that covers uh, the all the potential risks that I wanted to go through so having discussed the potential benefits and risks of the One Belt, One Road initiative, what implications can we take away from Singapore? For Singapore, well, on its face, I think we don't really need much improvement in infrastructure, uh, especially since our government seems to be on the ball uh, on that front. I know certainly there are some instances where the trains tend to be a little faulty, where sometimes public transport is... Um, not they, they tend to be a little late or they come in batches or they're, they're stuck in traffic jams and so forth but certainly on, on a relative front we have it way way better from an infrastructure standpoint than many of the maybe emerging markets or developing economies where their infrastructure is nowhere close to the standards that we have here right so if we don't have much to improve from an infrastructure point so that, then are we you know to be left out of this uh, economic windfall that is uh, uh, of this economic tidal wave that is going to come across in the next in the coming few years, well, not exactly. So, former government chief economist Tan Kong Yam he recently pointed out in a talk at Beijing that Singapore still has a key role to play 
especially in the roles of, and this is this is his words here, master planning and financing. So to this end, he even describes Singapore's role as a quote squirrel in the jungle quote that is nimble, non-threatening, and can serve as a go-between and an interlocutor. So it is important then for for millennials or people currently working, I think, to 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 really take heed of of this one belt one road initiative, and you know, I, I, I think particularly if you're working in say consulting and or, or or in finance, chances are in the near future you're going to be working on some you're going to be working with some client or your boss is going to send you on some assignment that involves a one that involves the the, the one belt one road initiative, right? Because it's it's going to be so expensive because it's it, it involves a around the Southeast Asian region as well. And and not even just saying the Southeast Asian region. So so this could happen, you know, elsewhere in places like China or even in Central Asia, maybe in, maybe even in Europe or Africa, you know. So we we Singapore is particularly known we we have developed this expertise in finance and in consultancy. So certainly we we still have a great role to play and you know, if you're working in this industries, you look look up for these opportunities out there. Chances are it will it there'll be a lot of them, a lot of opportunities in the near future. And certainly, if you want to keep yourself updated on the One Belt, One Road initiative, I think one good habit that you could do, one simple thing that you can do, is that you could just start by following the uh, the Facebook page for IE Singapore or International Enterprise Singapore, where they're, they're, they have constant updates talking about stories on how local firms or organizations have you know, expanded abroad, or they have collaborated abroad, or they even do updates about what the One Belt, in, One Belt One Road initiative might mean, or some of the projects that they have set up. Right. So, you know, as I mentioned before, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for those in the consulting and finance lines, right? But, you know, I don't think that this means necessarily that those in other industries, maybe if you're an engineer or maybe you're, you know, maybe in your, you're, you're a scientist or maybe in your the healthcare sector, I don't think that this is going to be necessarily bad for you, but maybe that this, there's, this going to be, there's going to be more opportunities uh, to, to, to go abroad and, you know, try and expand or try and look outwards into different markets now. Especially when there's going to be a lot of increased uh, uh, trading activity, a lot of increased cooperation between different economies in the near future to come. So def- definitely, I think the One Belt, One Belt, One Road initiative, while the, the primary beneficiaries uh, will, be these, uh, will be these infrastructure uh, industries, will be these you know, consulting industries, will be these finance industries, chances are there will be a lot of opportunities for you know uh, peripheral industries to pop up as well especially as globalization in the region uh, more trading in the region happens more cooperation there'll be more chances to go out and do business all right so on that note thank you for taking the time to listen in this week this has been the economical rice poc- economical rice podcast coverage on the one belt one root initiative dubbed by President Xi Jinping as the project of the century. So, because the project is still in its infancy, I think chances are that I will continue to talk about it in the near future, 
whether through blog posts, whether through more podcast episodes. So as usual, please follow the social media pages at Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or the website at www.economicalricepodcast.com for more content and updates on the latest uploads. We hope you can join us next time where we hope to serve you the grains of capitalism.